welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast, where every week we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under, with your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio. Hello and welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. I'm your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio, and today we are here to discuss the season one finale titled Knock Knock. I'm here today with Robert Dean, author of the book, The Red Seven. Uh, Robert, how you doing? Doing fantastic. <laughs> All right. And uh, just to explain how we hooked up, I did a, uh, a guest spot on the 288 podcast. And the podcast I did, I you know definitely go check out that episode. Uh, you could find them on iTunes at 288 podcast. And we got into some weird, wild moments, uh, but Matt Slayer, who's one of the hosts on the 288 podcast, is a good friend of Robert Dean and recommended you to me. Uh, Robert's latest book is The Red Seven, and while unfortunately I only had time to get through about halfway, it's it's a really interesting book. Uh, I'll let Robert you know, explain more of you know where he's coming from with that but let, let's backtrack a bit uh robert let's what's the red seven about what's the uh how would you explain it to people the red seven i explain to people is a western for people that don't like westerns because i really i think the western is a really interesting genre it's a part of american lore if there's two things americans are good at is in terms of the literary sense is the western is classically ours and even though the, like the mystery crime novel, a lot of uh, nationalities own it. As Americans, we are the ones who perfected it and made it what it is with its roots in noir. And so those two genres are very interesting to me. And I wanted to write a Western that didn't feel cheesy and hokey. I wanted it to be something that anybody who just likes a good dark story could understand. And I wanted to write it from a place that felt like a Quentin Tarantino movie, but also held the literary merit of something along the lines of Cormac McCarthy, which is a feather in my cap that that book got compared to Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and its style and tone. It's <laughs> not its readability, but it's just the fact that if I want to go all prose and huge, it, there's, there's spots in there, and getting that comparison is obviously to any writer's incredible. And I wanted to write a book that dealt with more of the psychology of loss and... It's the story of a bounty hunter who, he collects a bounty on a guy, and that guy owed money to a gang, and so the gang, feeling like they were more bigger and powerful than the bounty hunter, took their retribution out for losing money by killing his family. And so it's a story about a person who's going and killing each member of the gang, hence the Red Seven, so he kills seven men. But -hmm. it's not just about, like, murder and vicious violence. There's a undertowing of what loss can do to someone and how it can drive a man who his job is to be cold but taking that cold calculated killing and and putting a sense of ache and personality behind that and that was interesting to me is to like tell a very psychologically rounded story robert if i'm quoting you correctly you are a new orleanian living in austin exile yes yeah that's a fair way to say it (laughs) i I, uh-huh. I'm not from New Orleans, okay. but I moved to New Orleans after Katrina, and I consider New Orleans my home. It ever, I don't miss New Orleans. Like I consider it my home, and I miss it every single day. There's not a day I go by where I go, yeah, I'm over the New Orleans thing. No, I've been here for three years, and I still miss New Orleans every day. 
you know, do, doing the research on you and, you know, especially from the book, you had said on the, the 288 podcast episode that you did that, you know, your ashes will be spread in New Orleans. That That's how much you want to maybe not born there, but die there, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I got an, um, I just wrapped my third book and I'm working with a really esteemed editor and mm. I'm after it, man. I'm like, some dudes are just super psyched. Or I shouldn't say some dudes, some writers are just psyched to have something published, which I've been very fortunate to have twice. But mm. I mean, I'm, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm after it, dude. I want to have a book on the bestseller list and I want to have the ability to do things because some people want to write a bestseller to get rich and famous. I want to write a bestseller so I can afford to move back to New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, and you had mentioned that to me, and that's uh, I I'm someone who appreciates that honesty as opposed to it just solely being about the love and whatnot. But you know, people are people, and people have goals, and like, yeah, that's your goal. You you dude, I I I don't be, like I know some really great artists in all genres that crush it. They do incredible work. They do things that inspire me and they blow my mind and they do stuff that just absolutely is incredible and that's fine and well and I try really really hard to be competent at my craft like I work extremely hard to be a good writer like I listen to interviews with writers and try to glean secrets from them and I read constantly <laughs> and I read a perverse amount and because I'm constantly like if you think of that rocky dude like on the steps hitting the meat with the fucking hands that's me with writing, man. I'm in there every day trying to, I'll write people for free. I take jobs for shit money and do stuff yeah, just so yeah. I can continue to be better. And that's that thing is like, I've always held myself in the esteem that I'm after that conversation. When people talk about like Burroughs and Bukowski and they talk about people in the crime genre, like, you know, Dennis Lehane, like I want him in that conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm not fucking around. I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm not fucking around. I'm after that shit. And, no, I love it. Go on, go on. And it's just like, I do it for the art. I've been after it for 16 years. I'm, you learn, you grow every single day. But I'd be lying to you and I'd be lying to everyone else if I was like, no, man, I'm happy not making money. No, dude, that shit pisses me <laughs> off. I want, like, I don't give a fuck about winning an award. I want to win the Bank of America award because people are reading <laughs> my shit and they like it and they want to, like, have a relationship of honesty and discourse and see people because writers used to be these public figures of thought and people respected what we did. Hunter S. Thompson was a man that people brought him on to talk about his, how he thought the world was. Studs Terkel was that man. Mike Royko is an old newspaper man in Chicago. I'm sure you being from New York, you grew up with old newspaper men. Yeah. And when they would write these editorials, people respected that and took that as like cultural law of your city. And I grew up on the South side of Chicago and like those old timers, those are my heroes from when I was a kid, and I'm after that kind of shit, man. Like, we're living in a fucked up, we're going to have a whole weird universe coming up in four years. So as far as I'm concerned, if you're a sellout creative who won't take a stab at, like, establishing who you are and what your motives are, you're in the wrong fucking game as far as I'm concerned. The, the meat and potatoes of your podcast is talking about Six Feet Under. There is one thing I kind of learned, not to jump at topics and things, but a big thread of like that episode I watched was like this dude coming out and yeah, yeah. that dude coming out and that guy, like, I don't know shit about six feet under, mm -hmm. but I really liked that episode. I was like, this is actually pretty cool. And I watched it and I thought about that. That was in 2002 and in 2017, 
we live in a completely, we've evolved on that stuff. Like, we are socially evolved that coming out anymore is not a big deal. I mean, it is. Trust me. I'm not making a light of when somebody chooses to come out and they're like, brace their sexuality and they have a lot of social factors. It still sucks for a lot of people. But on the whole, it is a much less deal than it was at that time. And we've evolved there. Hey guys, just wanted to chime in here to say uh, the full interview with Robert is about an hour and I'm going to include that in my season one recap episode that's being released at the same time as this episode. So if you want to hear more of Robert, listen to the season one recap episode. You can hear uh, just as you know, the interview goes on just how how uh, hungry I would say Robert is. And furthermore, if you're a reader or someone who enjoys books or you know, you kind of want to go inside the mind of an author, uh, listen to the interview. He has some wild stories he tells, talks about New Orleans living in. It's just a good listen as he talks about how he formats a book and how he makes up the characters. And he's a really funny uh, Hunter S. Thompson story. So definitely go check that out. Uh, We're going to roll into the actual episode here, but uh, listen first as we're going to be doing a giveaway. I don't want to cut you off, but let's let's end that there. Let's let's go to promoting you and and promoting this podcast and something I had talked to you before what what I wanted to do is kind of do a the first giveaway on the podcast and how I wanted to go about this was you know we will send you a signed copy of Robert's book that he just talked about the red seven and how we'll go about that is you post this episode you know not not the, the entire podcast just this episode with Robert on it and post it on if you're going to go on twitter it's the most accessible way for both of us um at digging podcast roberts at robert underscore dean uh if you're going to use any other forms of social media post it screenshot it email it to me at digging six feet on their gmail.com and what we're going to do is pick five random winners and you know we'll send over the book (laughs) kind of like we were talking i'm not trying to be gimmicky and i don't want to pretend like what i'm asking for is for you to promote us for us but yeah like promote us and the way i be honest you you need people (laughs) spread the word that people don't like that's that misnomer whoever's listening look it works like this your friends trust your judgment on shit you can sell people all day long on what you want you're like oh man this is great i'm putting money behind it but if your friend is like no i gave this a shot it's really good those are the people who are going to empower you to make better choices that's what i'm saying i don't want to sit here and just pretend like oh you all you have to do is do this it's like no i'm actively telling you i'm trying i the way i looked at it and if you're a fan of the office i called it like a michael scott you know win 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 you post about the podcast, you spread word about the podcast. People will listen to the episode, they'll hear about Robert. You, in the end, will get a book, and it just so happens to be signed by Robert. Win for all. Send us over, tag us in it on Twitter, and if you post it anywhere else, email it to me. We'll pick five random people throughout the week, and you know, even if you don't get a copy, go ahead and uh, you know buy the book. Uh, you could, if you go, if you go to Robert's page on Twitter, you can find out through there how to buy or do you have something easier to say than me just telling people to go to your twitter to just go to, to amazon it's the cheapest you can get it in bookstores you can uh, get it from barnes and noble but honestly just go to amazon it's 10 bucks it's it's usually like a dollar shipping or something stupid if you have prime it's free um yeah it just depends on what your medium is but you can go to your local bookstore and order it 
it's in certain cities. It was it was carried here in Austin. It was carried in New Orleans, and it was carried in Florida, where my publisher is from. And mm. it sold out in all the stores, which was awesome. Yeah, just order it off Amazon. It's easier. It's the safest, fastest bet, and then you don't have to deal with bullshit waiting around. You can have <laughs> anything in Amazon in like two days. So just do that. <laughs> So before we get into it, and I had asked you previous to recording if you've ever attended a New Orleans funeral, and quote me, uh, or correct me here, uh, is a New Orleans funeral a second line, or are those two things different? No, it's a second line. So the the original title for it is, it's called a jazz funeral. It's reserved socially for people of stature, like, did you make an impact on the community? Did people love you? It's the ultimate way to send someone off in New Orleans. Like, I can only wish that people give a shit about me enough that I would be able to be sent off like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the community coming together, res- respecting you, and then all those people you see are people just jumping in. It, it, a second line is meant that the first line of people are those carrying the gray, the casket, and, they're t- and the band is playing with you onward. And you walk to a certain degree a place then the band just walks and then the second line is everyone that follows the band and so it's more or less with like signs and flags of people celebrating your life and the idea is that the neighborhood jumps in and it's just one big free-for-all dancing party where people grab beers and just fucking walk as long as they want and dance and it's it's an emotional freeing experience and i have been to second lines i have walked in second lines and living in treme they used to go past my house very frequently uh, asking as a funeral director here, the body's present. The very from like the from the walk from the building to the car, it's present. And in some cases, it'll be like present for like a block, maybe. Like they'll park the car for like a long distance from the church to the uh, to the car. Like maybe they'll go like a block or two, and all the pallbearers will walk really long. Like they're like, all right, this is a thing. And then after that, after they put the body in, that's when the second line takes off and then it becomes all about celebrating that person's life. It's not like the body that they're walking around the streets of New Orleans with the corpse. Right. And, okay, so it, it's in a hearse. It's not like in a, in a buggy or a horse-drawn anything. No, just, like... For the, for, the, for, the, for the amount that it is there, it's just in the hearse. Yeah, it's only... The body's only present for, like, the first, like, f- five minutes of it. It's the walk from the building... With the band, they'll play a slow droning tune, a traditional tune, from the building to the hearse. It's very traditional jazz, uh, very respectful. They'll put the body in the car, and then the band will walk on, and that's when all the people, the family, it, like they'll walk and they liven the music instantly up. Everybody starts dancing, and then next thing you know, that's when all the people in the neighborhood start joining in too. And before you know it, what was... Which started as 20 people can become 500 within, you know, 20 minutes. That's interesting. And and if there's any, because I know I have some funeral directors listening. If any funeral directors have been a part of this, uh, I'm assuming it, this is not a funeral direct funeral home plan thing. This is more of a community plan thing. Um, yeah, it depends. It just depends. It's uh-huh. a community thing. It just depends. I mean, that's a part of the community of New Orleans. So, like, if you're a person that people respect and people would do a second line for you're already coming into it to arm to the teeth. You know what I mean? It's not like a service you can offer because people, you know, you're not providing it (laughs) like the community. No, you're not, you're not providing it. It's something that like 
a Joe off the street ain't gonna get a second line. You didn't right, earn right, that. Right, right, right. Well, uh, furthermore, if there is any funeral directors who have been a part of it, let write in, let me know, because I'm I'm as a funeral director and and you know someone who's done rarely, I wouldn't say any celebrity funerals, but uh, let me put it this way: I've never been a part of anything like that. And just on the funeral side, I'd like to hear uh, your your experience with it. Right before we get into the episode, uh, your history with Six Feet Under. Do you have any? What's your or maybe a premise of thoughts on the show? Uh, realistically, when it was um, coming out, I was aware of it, and I just never got into it because I'm going to be honest with you, dude. I'm terrible at watching movies. I'm terrible at TV shows. I read a lot, so I'm super late always to everything. Like, I just saw The Departed last week, and that's one of my <laughs> wife's favorite movies. I loved it. I love Scorsese movies. I loved it. Yeah. I just – people are like, oh, did you see this amazing, great thing? And, like, I, my wife and I, like, we spend time, like, watching movies together. Like, that's our thing is, like, let's watch a movie. Because if she, if she wasn't here, I would be locked away working or reading. And <laughs> it helps me because I, I take in new media, and it's very helpful – but because I'm such a fucking head case, <laughs> I need her to do that with me. And I was not privy to um, watching Six Feet Under when it was currently on. I knew it was culturally viable, and I knew it was there, and I know it's a great show. It's won a bunch of awards. I remember it very vividly. Um, after watching the episode last night, it's on my watch list now. I probably won't get to it for a year. Right, but, right. Because um, I'm watching The Wire right now, and it's kind of slow going. Yeah. And the wire is fucking incredible, man. I can talk about that at length. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like right now, my cue is kind of like, what? Finish the wire. I'm gonna watch Taboo with her. We're gonna watch the night of. Then I'm gonna rewatch Sopranos. Yeah. And then um, I think sometime after that, I'm gonna try to get into Six Feet Under, like legitimately, give it a real shot because I don't know what project. I know what my my publishing map is. I have things I'm committed to for the next like year and a half in terms of contracts signed and books I'm going to be either a part of editing or um, what I've got on paper. So depending on what I'm writing, Six Feet Under could play a role of something that influences me. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, then. Uh, with that being said, we could uh, get into it. Our season one finale aired on August 19th, 2001. And this episode was directed and written by the showrunner, Alan Ball. Uh, he did a commentary on this finale. He did one for the or the pilot, rather, and the finale. And as we go on, I'll mention you know some of its insight as it relates to the scenes. But our death capsule starts out. Actually, let me cut back here. Are you aware that every episode starts out with a death? Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay, okay. So that's why I'm calling this little death capsule. And it starts out with um, Gilardi, and he's talking with Mitzi, who's I guess the executive of Kroner. Or, or whatever her title is, and, you know, she's demanding Gilardi to scoop up three more funeral homes to boost the Kroner cash flow. And, you know, we sort of thought Gilardi was the head honcho, and, you know, funny, we find out that it's a woman who's sort of pulling the strings. It's important to keep in mind as this becomes part of the season two arc, uh, but for now, they're, they're golfing, you know, a woman barking orders at a man like Gilardi, all the while golfing, you know, kind of speaks to her stature, her power, you know, doing what a man does, but obviously she's a female. And 
as in every death capsule, there is always a twist as to who dies. There's obviously like a red herring where she, Tracy starts coughing and, you know, she's fine with it. Well, she's fine. Uh, she goes ahead, swings her club. The shot hooks right and hits our 62-year-old Lillian Montrose in the head. When the golf ball hit the woman in the head, did you notice at all the dog and how he acted? He or she reacted to it. Did you see pick up on that? I did not, but I'm going to say in all transparency, I watched that show drunk last night and I was eating Popeye's <laughs> chicken. And, that, and that's fine. That's fine. We, you know, there's still good conversation there. Uh, to the people who did pick up on it, uh, you know, if you remember, they're just sitting there very calmly. And it's, you know, you can't teach a dog, at least not like this, to, to act. But, you know, a dog does react. That it's just perfect reaction. You know, it, it's 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 such genuine reaction. Uh, it was a nice little tidbit. Uh, Nate is taking his funeral director's test for the second time. And he gets a page. Something that's great about this show. The show always dates itself. And... <laughs> you know, uh, up shows on the pager, uh, you know, need you now, you know, B, which is for Brenda. Uh, I can't imagine a testing center would allow pagers in there, especially ones that get messages. But Nate is needed by Brenda. And when he shows up there, Brenda has to go see Billy, who's she committed to an institution in the uh, previous episode. And what we see as their storyline sort of unravels is basically... You know, Brenda sort of shares this Batman slash Joker. Uh, maybe you could give a better example, Rob, than, you know, my comic. Uh, just like the codependent relationship that one cannot live without the other. Comment at this sort of fresh. How did you receive their relationship of what you know from the episode? Man, I was watching that and then, like, she crashes the car and shit. And I was like, who the fuck wants to be with this lady? <laughs> and... She uh-huh. crashes the car, and I was like, fuck, man. Like, why would you want to be with her? She just nearly killed you, and she freaks mm-hmm. out. You know, she kind of reminded me of, I think, I don't know if she was written to have the personality, but she really reminded me of uh, um, the lead character that Jack Nicholson plays in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She kind of definitely embodied that perfect crazy. But, I mean, like, even maybe just a Jack Nicholson arc period because i mean there was a shades of like you saw that actress was really good because in the conversation of her freaking out in the car and talking about getting married she went through like a lot of emotions in a matter of seconds which is really hard to do as an actor yeah this show and i forget who said it i think it was an earlier guest and, and you know forgive me uh not giving proper credit but someone said this show has the the unique ability in that all these actors together are at their highest but if you like separated them they aren't as good you know what i mean like this show they're all at their peak and they work within the the dynamic of this show i've never seen her in any other work i think her name is rachel griffiths in real life i've never seen her in any other work but here she's just so so perfect uh same thing with michael c hall michael c hall obviously went on to do other things but he's so that it's so perfect in this role you know? I think that works. That's that's kind of an HBO thing, though, because yep, they yep, don't really. Yep. If you think about like HBO, how the, the the best shows all are ensemble casts. I mean, a lot of the things you can think of. Yeah, there's standout stars. Like look at Sex and the City. 
is one of them. I mean, that shit just worked together. And has Sarah Jessica Parker, like, really had a career since then? Yeah, you could say she's done stuff, but she shined the greatest with those other actors. I mean, just like watching The Wire. There's a lot oh, of people on there. Yeah. There's Idris Elba and there's Michael K. Williams, which he's in everything now. And mm-hmm. there's people that have their moments. But for the most part, a lot of the people who, like, crush, like, you don't see McNulty in really shit. He's in, like, a show maybe. But actually, he's got a gig, I think, on like a network right now. But uh, yeah, it's on the affair. Uh, and he, you know what? He's kind of. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the show, and it's a total soap opera. He's he's sort of just as good. But I wonder if I have bias there because I love The Wire and I've seen him in The Wire. You know. But yeah. to your point, but to your point about The Wire, uh, there's a lot of actors, and I don't know them off the top of my head, but there's a lot of actors where like they literally got picked off the street and they were. Oh man, I mean, uh, there's a few characters who pop up. They're not even actors. They're actual Baltimore. God, I'm gonna butcher the word here. They're actual important people. Yes, residents, but uh, uh, people of stature in Baltimore. And where David Simon was just like, I think you should play this role because you know The Wire is most realistic TV show to me ever. Um, so there's actually people who are not even actors in there, you know. Uh, that whole cast of The Wire, I don't. I a lot of them I've never seen them in anything else, and if they are, it's a small bit part. But in in that show, in that world, they're perfect, you know. Yeah. Fun fact about that: I was living in in the Treme when they made Treme. That was David Simon's show that came after The Wire. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's not as good as The Wire. But you're never gonna catch lightning in a bottle twice. We were very, we were really excited when that came out. We're like, "Fuck, David Simon from The Wire is making a show about New Orleans. It's gonna be incredible." <laughs> Wendell Pierce was in it. Uh, yeah, bunch, a yeah. couple of people from the Wire cast were in Treme. But I was actually an extra in one of the episodes of Treme. But they used a ton, a ton of people from New Orleans that are just yeah. regular New Orleans people of stature, like all walks of life, from musicians to all people from the city were all throughout that cast so that you that's completely correct on that man that's awesome to 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 scale it back to our to our six feet under the conversation when billy uh brenda goes to see billy in the institution you know the the conversation they have is is almost well rather let me scale it back a bit uh when they're driving there brenda is pretty scared to talk to Billy and there was almost sort of this like I don't like using the term but like a, a battered battered woman sort of uh, a vibe where she was you know she's she was the one who was wronged Billy's the one who obviously he's manic bipolar but he's the one who in, in the simplest terms harmed her but she's nervous as to what you know Billy's going to say to her and there's you know it should be the other way around sort of thing but we'll talk about that more. Our season-long character, Tracy, shows up to the Fisher Funeral Home to plan a funeral for her Aunt Lillian, who is the one who died in the death capsule. And putting on my, my funeral director lens here, Lillian, or rather Tracy, is a <laughs> is a monster of a family to care for. Uh, Do you get this those? Does hap- yeah, well, yes, that's exactly what I have to talk about. This does happen. When a family needs to be so in control that they don't allow you to do your job, you know, and they're just tinkering with everything at every angle. Uh, What's funny, though, is as a funeral director, you have to tread lightly. You know, she's there despite, you know, she's complaining about the smallest of things. She's she's still lost someone. She's still grieving, you know. 
But there comes a point where it's like, hey, as a funeral director, I'm here trying to provide you with the best service. I'm trying to honor your loved one, you know. Uh, please stop butting heads with me at every turn. But w- with someone like this, if I'm stepping in David or the Fisher's shoes here, you just sort of sit back and just let them complain. There's nothing, you know, just how we see the episode goes out. It seems like there's nothing that they could have done to, to, to make her happy, you know. Barking back, as we see later in the episode, kind of like Nate does, it almost makes matters worse. So here with someone like this, you just let them run crazy. You just take it on the face and you just hope at the end of it all, I hope, I hope, I hope I let you <laughs> have everything you wanted, you know, thank you. And you just kind of leave it like that. We move on to Nikolai, and he is demanding that Ruth stay late uh, when she hears Ruth making plans with Hiram. Uh, it's a jealousy move of sort, you know, where Nikolai's, uh, if I can't have fun, no one will, and a sign why you shouldn't mix uh, business with pleasure. Uh, Ruth, after a whole season of being so soft and scared and timid, finally boils over and, you know, tells Nikolai off. Um, it, it's funny how strong she could be. But something so quick when Nikolai fires back, fires her, and it's the only thing left in his arsenal towards Ruth, uh, just breaks, you know, any momentum Ruth had. Let me ask you here, Robert, Nikolai, I don't know if you picked up on it, he's Russian on the show. Any any, any idea of what ethnicity you think he actually is? Well, when I heard this in the comment, the reason why I'm asking is when I heard it on the commentary, as someone who's a big fan of the show, I had never knew this. Uh, any guess as to what ethnicity Nikolai is? I would have thought like Ukrainian or something. That would have been my guess. He's actually Irish, which I would have never guessed. Given uh, like the, the actor or the character? No, no, the character is Russian. I'm talking the, the, the real actor in real oh, life. Oh, okay. I was like, wait, what? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. No, no, like, like what? The fucking guy's name is Nikolai. <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, he's 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 Russian on the show, but in real life, he's Irish. That's uh, crazy. He does definitely not look like my people. <laughs> but you know, that's something here to get to, where it's just like he fits so perfect in this role, <laughs> playing a Russian. But I've never seen him in anything else. I loved mm-hmm. that character, the mom character. When yeah, yeah, like I loved her for that episode, man. Like the. Sh- the whole thing i mean we're jumping ahead about how she is but when she talks when she finally like her and nikolai bang and she's like i won't be your girlfriend i don't want to get married i'll be your lover and your co-worker and she's very straightforward in the way her like language played out i really enjoyed how she played it and then totally took the piss out of that guy in completely assumed dominance with using her bravado almost i mean it's just the way that they played that out was really good and i think that actress like owned that character for that moment france i mean at a season long francis conroy if i had to if i was ranking the the art the actor or actress's performance uh francis conroy is at the top because what she emits and what she emits in every scene is just crazy uh to give you backstory on that and since this is the finale we could sort of you know recap all the characters ruth is a pretty timid character she's really like that that is not something you would have seen in episode one or two ruth like that's sort of like a coming out party for her she was really scared. And, you know, you saw it really quick right before when, you know, when Nikolai fires her, 
she, you know, she just breaks down. She just lashed out at him, and then she just breaks down just with one uh, something that goes against what she's doing. But yeah, to see her completely take control and, like you said, just kind of let the air out on him, uh, it, it's such a nice character arc for her as someone who's tiptoes around her own feelings and everything to get to the point where listen this is how it's going to be and if you want to be here that's great but i'm letting you know that this is going to happen um yeah i I like i I like this dynamic where you 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 don't know every single thing about the characters but you're chiming in with something great where it's like yeah that was such a great scene for that character in this episode yeah it was uh Definitely drunk on my couch eating Popeye's chicken at 2 o'clock in the morning last night watching it after I got home from the bar. Uh, David comes into the prep room to see the status of Lillian's body, and they discuss how some cosmetics will cover it up. Uh, from from an employee standpoint, something that always bothered me, David tells Rico to do a good job because they stand to make a lot of money, and... I'm going to extend it further where owners have said the same thing to me. And it always rang in my head that I was always going to do uh, whatever my quality of workers. I was always going to do the best that I could do regardless. What you know, Whether or not you had told me to do my best like David does, I was going to make it the most presentable possible. Let me not say the best because that means on every single case I'm pouring my heart out and everything. Uh, I'm always going to make it the most presentable possible because you're dealing with, you know, a, a family's loved ones. If we're speaking from from the end product, you know, the point of Lillian in her casket, uh, cosmetics-wise, uh, and probably one of the biggest complaints, and Robert, I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but you could sort of chime into this. Uh, the biggest complaint uh, when people see their loved one in a casket or anyone, right, uh, is how how the the cosmetics looks caked on. Mm-hmm. Is that something? Yeah. Uh, and a term, uh, my earlier work working with older funeral directors, and it's something I live by now. Where, and I imagine other funeral directors could kind of point to this too: is uh, less is more. You know, like the less makeup, the more natural it looks. Uh, you're always going to get a better better result. But to scale it back to what, you know, just David said, and, you know, we're stepping outside of the show into the, the funeral director realm here. This, telling him to do a good job is, it's almost redundant and useless. You know, he was going to make her look presentable the best way he could, whether or not David had said that. That's kind or of like I, a lose-lose aspect of the gig, though, you know? What do you I mean, mean? Like, you try really hard. You have the family in mind. They're paying a, a, a premium for this service. I mean, funeral work is not cheap. And it's somebody's loved one. It's expensive. You're under stress because you're trying to do the best job possible. And then they're stressed out because they just lost, you know, a member of their, their clan. And it's mm-hmm. just like you can't please everybody. And it's got to be a very vexing part of the process because, you know, like I've been there. And I remember that's always – the thing is when you're on the like receiving end of a funeral when you're totally, you know, an outsider, you're like, fuck looking at somebody like, well, they look, they look pretty good. They look natural. That was good. And that's always the comments that like people say is they looked natural. Cause I remember specifically when my grandma died, she did not look natural. That did not look like her. And mm-hmm. you're like, she died from fucking cancer. She didn't die in a car wreck. <laughs> and so it was just one of those things is like, I get that. And I, I almost I, I do I empathize 
with the person who's tasked to like not sully someone's legacy in the last image someone has in their head of somebody that they've spent years being emotionally attached to. So I'm getting cremated, man. What's that? (laughs) Uh, And you know what, too? Let let, let me venture off on that, too. Uh, Even if you are cremated, doesn't mean you can't have open casket and whatnot. I'm not pushing an agenda. I'm more informing and educating. Uh, Cremation is just a a final form of disposition. So just look at it as whatever your traditional funeral, whatever funeral you chose to have. I'm hoping that they set me up weekend at Bernie style and they put a whole (laughs) bunch of ice around my corpse and people put beers in there and Uh put bags of weed and whatever they want. And then they just use me as a buffet table and just take their (laughs) beers and their bottles of shots. I'm just laying there like a gross piece of meat. Then they take me, burn me and throw my ashes in the Mississippi river. I'd be perfectly happy with that. I hope one day that could happen. Maybe not exactly as what you're saying, but do I want to say as ridiculous? Uh, you know, you know what? I'll say this. If you want your funeral to be like that, that is ridiculous in the sense of just imagine you're in the middle. Why, you know, the wire detective style. I don't know if you got there yet. Or you're just in the middle of, of the place and everyone's just gathering. But I hope one day it's as personable as that. Uh, the show we're watching, 2001, the funeral is so cookie cutter per se. I do hope we, as an industry, we get to a point where it's it's that personable, where people are doing that, you know? You should see the back. neighborhood I grew up in, man. Uh-huh. It's, Go on. It's I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood on the south side. And oh, yeah, yeah. Dude, like, they had to put signs up on the side of the building that say no drinking. Because people <laughs> would roll. They, they had to put a sign up. It's called McInerney's Funeral Home on Wallace Street in the south side. That place has been around since the neighborhood started. My my uncle's wife was just wait, funeral there today, and uh, that they had to put a sign up on the side of the building that said no drinking because people would pull up and like the whole side of the building on Wallace would be just all these fucking big old Irish Catholic dudes and everybody just slamming bottles of whiskey and people <laughs> like my cousins buried with more drugs, guns, weed, and bottles of booze than you can imagine. That's really funny. Straight, That's awesome, though. Serious as a heart attack. Like when, and like they people pull up the Harleys on the side of the the. That's a really like bike. A lot of bikers too. So people pull their Harleys right up next to the building, and it's a thing. Like that's, yeah. I, I would you would be almost incredulous for you to be like, well, like not saying you, but the funeral director would be like, well, let's not let's not pull the motorcycles on the sidewalk, and you guys don't drink outside. You're literally gonna like have a revolt of a whole bunch of like neighborhood people <laughs> yeah, yeah. that do not want to even hear that come out of your mouth. Right, right. No, and I get, I get it. I get it. And, and there's a part of me, while i glad to not be a part of that funeral home, I'm glad to hear that that happens where uh, uh, community takes precedent over, you know, uh, business or whatnot. That's just, that's how our people roll though, man. You ain't going to tell them otherwise. Like the neighborhood right. I grew up in, everyone is, uh, baptized, married at the same church, and then they're all, uh, even if you moved out of the neighborhood, you are waked at McInerney's. And I like I, don't, I probably shouldn't be saying their name like that, but it is a neighborhood institution. Like, mm-hmm, you are mm-hmm. born into St. Gabe's, and you, you die at McInerney's. That's it. Yeah. You ain't going to mess with over, as long as Chicago's been there, that neighborhood of Irish immigrants have all done their time at that in that building. 
Right, so right. it ain't changing tomorrow. That's cool, though. That's cool. Nate and Brenda arrived to see Billy in the institution, and something that was pointed out in the commentary by Alan Ball is when we had seen Nate, the first time Nate sees Claire in the pilot, there was this long, drawn-out hallway um, in the morgue when they went to go pick up Nathaniel. And we see here as Brenda, in the finale, obviously, Brenda going to see her brother Billy there's this long hallway where he's, you know, he's sort of looking outside. But just to, you know, uh, correlate the two, Billy here is an amazingly such a great mind state. Uh, it takes a big person to admit how wrong you are. And everything with Billy, you sort of have to take with a grain of salt because he is you know, manic bipolar and chemically imbalanced. What I liked about this scene was the end of it. And what's funny is that Billy is the one who, again, are you always taking the grain of salt that he's the manic one and he's he's chemically imbalanced. Uh, the end of it, Billy's consoling Brenda, you know, where it should have been the other way around, where you know Billy's Billy's telling Brenda everything's gonna be okay and everything. In any other scenario, that would be opposite. But to as healed or or as normal as you think Billy is or on the rise of his getting better <laughs> the scene ends with Billy telling Brenda you're so beautiful and it's just like just when you thought you know he's normal there's just that little thing did you pick up that they were brother and sister no no they're they, they're brother and sister and there's a whole entire backstory that uh not to explain or get into, but yeah, he's in the prior episode. She finally had him committed and yeah, there's just that. It's just funny. Like he's the one consoling her and it obviously should, you know, be the other way around. We see the return of Nathaniel Fisher and plays to almost all the Fishers in this episode. And the first time in the series to Claire who jokingly, but realistically tells her, you know, start making or doing something with your life. Uh, Ruth walks in and as said in the commentary, the two share sort of a, a girlfriend conversation after Ruth was fired. Uh, their relationship so far has been rocky, but here it's just a genuine, you know, like girlfriend conversation. You know, can, can you believe this? Oh my God, screw him. You know, uh, it's the first time they've shared this sort of intimate moment and it's unexpected. You know, you could sort of see it on Claire's face, sort of this, you know, who's this woman? Even though this woman is obviously um, her grandmother, oh, I'm sorry, her grandmother, her mother, to to talk about that that car wreck scene earlier and what you were saying, who the hell would want to stay with Brenda? Something I've shared almost every episode is that any guy in Nate's shoes would have ran. What you're seeing in this episode, it's almost once an episode where it's just like, dude, I would get the hell out of there so fast. They're on the road after visiting Billy and. Brenda's sort of compensating for losing Billy needs to direct her anger somewhere. Uh, you know, obviously she can't direct it at Billy, uh, so Nate gets the brunt of it. You know, the, the the fight or the conversation they're having doesn't really hold any substance. It's just Brenda just starting something just to start. You know, it's almost as she knew bringing up the marriage question was going to be the pilot burner, you know, to fight. And as a symbol for where they're at in their relationship, Brenda crashes into another car. And... To talk about the hospital scene, and Robert chime in here. Uh, I'm some. I'm a rather rational person, and 
it's a flaw of mine at times. I'm, I'm way less emotional than I should be, and I'm, I'm more pragmatic. Do you agree with me here that maybe you shouldn't be an agreeing, not proposing, but agreeing to the idea of marriage after a serious car accident like Nate does? No, I mean, no, man. I like, I, I'm married, and I like, I don't know. You got to like live in the shoes of somebody who is like that. Like I'm a very pragmatic person too. I'm an extraordinarily mm-hmm. pragmatic person, but I'm also like, I'm a writer. So I'm very in tune with my emotions mm-hmm. and you know, like I, the thought of being in a car wreck, almost losing someone and then being like, fuck, I can't even imagine like life without you is like, it's weird because I, I not in the same situation of my wife being crazy, fucking annoying like that lady is. Mm-hmm. So I just, it was, I couldn't even imagine of like, being with her and then almost losing her and having the whole life flash before your eyes thing go down and then being like, I fuck, I just want to be together. We're alive. Let's best foot forward from here on out. Like I get that, man. I mean, it's kind of one of those things is like, I always say like people get, when you have that like conversation, the older you get about like spirituality and different things, like I'm not a religious person with my pragmatic brain that doesn't make sense to me i'm just that guy but the world is a fucking scary place dude it is a frightening place you can lose people in the blink of an eye shit you could fucking blow up going to the grocery store in some countries and the world's a scary place whatever gets you through the night is what gets you through the night and if you have a like a crazy near-death experience that like really opens your eyes to what like you can view as love or what you think is love or just love period in any form that shit wakes you up man because you realize you're like holy shit i could have died back there and you see the world with a completely different like lens view you could be around death crazy but if you've been into a near fatal car wreck you're probably walking out of that a lot different than when you went in yeah, and obviously, you know that's that's a fair point, and I guess I guess what I would say to that is um, your 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 priorities are are constantly shifting, and we were speaking off mic, but that's sort of the great one of the great things about this show is you experience it way differently and and age twenty as opposed to age thirty or age forty, um, you know. So obviously, when she brings it up before the car crash. Um, you know, he, he, the idea is crazy to him, but you know, you shift it. Let's, let's call it four hours later. Nate is all about it. You know, the priority shift there. And yeah, yeah. That's something I didn't take into account that to, to be so close to losing someone, it's like, yes, just let's marry right now on the spot. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a fair point on that. Uh, Rico and David are working on Lillian's body for visitation and something I had brought up on episode eight with, uh, my guest Brett is how the Fisher seem to rent out their funeral homes for local events. And in this case, he's renting it out for Rico's son's christening. Um, weird. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, I had a funeral director did writing telling me how, you know, they've worked across many States and have never seen this. Uh, I'm just going to throw it out there again. If you know, I, I've worked in two States, two major cities. I've never, heard or seen this if anyone else knows about this write in I'm, I'm really curious to hear um you know i'm not talking about parties that are done like in the house part like where they live upstairs i'm talking like you know in the chapels is something who would want to do that i mean i don't i would you know I'm some part of this me this is artistic license 
There is no <laughs> rational person that would want to do that. You, I, you, you know what though? What about my idea is maybe somewhere in small towns that yeah. maybe not have any other. Again, I'm going off the uh, off off. Like I'm just grasping at whatever I think. Maybe some small. Again, I'm 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 saying that with the fact that I had a funeral director write in who said they've worked at those small towns where, you know, there's one supermarket, there's one gas station, and they don't do it. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I In the end, if it gun to my head and I had to, you know, say it, uh, it's artistic license. It's just a way to involve the funeral home within the plot of the story. I'm saying I'm, – I'm with you on that. I, I, the only rational way you can think of it is in two things. One – uh, the only use I could ever see some people have a real aversion to death, man. Like I'm not like I'm a weird dude. I'm a super weird dude. I'm in my office right now and I got taxidermy. I got a fucking pig in a jar in here. <laughs> like I got candles. I got I got a poster that was taken off the streets of uh where is this from? I think it's from wherever Gaddafi was, Libya. I have a poster from the streets of Libya with pictures of dead Gaddafi. But I'm not mm-hmm. gonna go to a birthday party unless it's like yeah, I'm going to a birthday party that's held by the singer in a black metal band. We're going to have it at a funeral home because he's super weird. <laughs> this makes sense. But, I mean, that makes sense in context. So you can walk into it <clears throat> knowing that you're going to an event shrouded in death and you're you're in a situation with people. The, the, jo- the joke is firmly in place and it's there front and center. But going to, like, a social gathering for a christening of a child in a fucking – funeral home that's crossing all kinds of like emotional boundaries for people that i don't think in a a small town especially there's like seven people and everybody's fucking families died in that room or like been (laughs) stored in that room yeah you don't want to associate that kind of memory with where you had your six-year-old birthday party that's that's i'm calling that one on bullshit from a mile away yeah and 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 let me say uh, a funeral home, and this is a Fisher family, so they all live there. Of, and it sort of lends its its why the show, why the characters all have their unique flaws, you know, because they all have celebrated their birthdays in this funeral home. You know, to what you're saying, it was all upstairs, like in the actual house. You know, the the term funeral home comes from the fact that people used to live at the funeral home and. Uh, funeral directors still do original funeral home owners still live in the funeral home but it's a completely separate apartment of the house it's not like they celebrated birthdays in the chapels but we'll get to that end scene because there is there is a a story a story art to that if we can move to ruth and hiram are out to dinner and just like I was saying before, how much Ruth's character has grown. Uh, Hiram here is breaking up with Ruth because he's met someone else. And, you know, the funny, cute little irony is how how well Ruth has taken it and how much Hiram is, you know, shocked by it. Let me ask you, Robert, dating in your dating days when you weren't married, have you ever broken up with someone and they took it like he did where you're dumping the person and they're completely okay with it? No, no, it's always been yeah. I I mean I've never uh, man. Can I say I've never met someone? I've heard of it. It's never happened to me. It's always you know helter skelter. Um, but a, a completely amicable breakup like this uh, for Ruth's character is rather funny, and you know someone something to correlate. Or I was saying earlier to close out, close out this scene. 
Ruth is now the one consoling Hiram. You know, she closed that with, well, let's get some dessert. Let's 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 cheer you up. So again, you had Billy earlier as the one consoling Brenda. And here you have Hiram, uh, rather Ruth, you know, consoling Hiram after Hiram's the one who broke up with her. Uh, just nice little character juxtapositions there. Report you uh, so, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, David is at the church serving as a deacon where the congregation is arguing about a marriage that Father Jack led with two lesbians. And they're voting as to what to do with Father Jack. Um, it's funny the way they're talking about gay marriage in 2001 and how much of a abomination it is. If Let me say this. You're listening to the wrong podcast if you think the idea of gay marriage is appalling. Uh, me and Rob were talking off mic, and I, I, I personally don't think I have a lot of listeners who are against the idea of gay marriage, but something my previous guest, Ken, had said, uh, which I never personally took into account, is that you never stop coming out, that it's a continual process. And so here, David, you know, sort of sick of all the bullshit, comes out to his church. And Dave, David, with a nod from Marcus Foster, um, the, the, the person from the death capsule in our previous episode, gives, gives David sort of a supporting nod. The idea that David can't have a vote because he's gay is, you know, whatever. It's obviously absurd and whatnot. Um, I can't say, I can't see why David would want to be here being a gay male in this church process. There's a business aspect to it, but I can't see why as he's now more comfortable in his own skin as a gay male i can't see why he would be a part of it you know we see later that he sort of fights with father jack about it Uh, at least at least on this when they vote that david (laughs) you know david comes out to them i don't know man like i just that kind of shit just bums me out and i i just I, i i have a hard time relating to those kinds of things i get uncomfortable watching old shit like that where people have to censor themselves in the way that we used to portray it. I mean, it was life as it was a like a, you know, just a little short over a decade ago. And it's just, I'm so happy that we've evolved the way we have because watching that makes me feel happy for gay people because that's not the case. You know, most, yeah. Are there pockets of society that are full of awful people who, if you came out to your church, would they accept you? No, but, um, I like to think that we're getting past that and it's becoming less of an issue as those, that generation dies off. So I don't really, you know, it just, it bums me out. Like I was, I'll watch Eddie Murphy raw and he uses, he says, you know, a whole bunch and I'm like, man, come on. And then I think I'm like, wait a minute, it's 1984. It was a completely different time. Right, right, right. Eddie Murphy ain't saying that shit now. <laughs> and, and you know, um, the conversation that David later has with Father Jack in, in a season of character arcs, it's nice to see you're seeing Robert, you're seeing David in the form of he's more confident. This character up to these 12 episodes, it's been it's been a, it's been a hard but interesting watch because he's so scared. And, uh, you know, you see why you know so scared and then he has like a lot of this internalized homophobia with himself you know uh so we you're seeing him here as sort of the big how do i say this the beginning of a formed product of himself you know finally to get to that point where he's like i'm gay and what you know when he's talking here with father jack you know he 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 calls out father jack kind of sort of like keith does to him that 
you know, I thought you were braver than that. I, I thought you had more, more, more power to fight the fight of sorts. And, you know, it just shows David growth. And uh, sort of the scene ends, you know, there's another nod from Marcus Foster who shows up. Uh, David feels isolated when Father Jack reveals that he is not, in fact, gay. But in reality, it doesn't even matter to what David's fighting. Uh, David has to stand up for himself in whichever way possible in, in the terms of the church, you know. As a result of the accident, Nate uh, gets brain scans, and uh, which reveals Nate has a. I, I I didn't get the exact term. I'm gonna go with vascular malfunctioning of the brain, and he's at a higher risk of stroke than most people. What's interesting here, and it was it was Alan Ball pointed it out in the commentary, is Nate was always running away from death his entire life. You know, furthering himself from the funeral business, and now here death has sort of caught up with him. You know, it has this uh, impending doom that could break out at any moment. It could be, let me say this, it's probably rather difficult to live a life knowing that you're at a higher risk of death, that, you know, death can catch you at any time. Man, um, that shit gives me nightmares. Right? And, and you know what's funny? As the as we're sitting right here talking, that could be in one of us right now, and we just simply don't know it. <laughs> you know? Uh, I don't want to spoil what happens to Nate's character, but... It's just there. I guess that you know what. Let me let me let me scroll this back. That's sitting there with anyone, right? Like it's not just if you get diagnosed. If uh, let me say, if Nate was wasn't lucky enough to get into a car accident to find that out, and and, and to Nate's Nate's character and Nate's story, you know, the doctor recommends that Nate is not supposed to run. You know, Nate says this couldn't happen to me. I, I run three miles a day. The doctor tells Nate. Don't run with before we do further tests. And, you know, a few scenes later, there's this montage of <laughs> Nate running harder than ever. You know, he's sort of just you could see the sweat and just the, how hard he's running more and more, I guess, making himself immortal. I don't want to say how would you react in that scenario, but let me get let me put it this way. You could see where Nate's coming from, right? Oh, my in terms God. Of the way he starts running. Dude, like I have. um So. I have really bad anxiety and I thought for the longest time, like I was dying and I have like an extreme fear of doctors and I am, I'm frightened of doctors. Like I, I associate because my, when my grandma died at a, I was a really young, it's like 13 and I associate hospitals with death because I lost them. That meant the whole world to me. And I have like a real aversion to fucking doctors, hospitals. Like I am the classic man until it's killing me or I can't get out of bed, I ain't seeing a fucking doctor. <laughs> Irony with the whole thing is I'm married to an ICU nurse. <laughs> so likely, luckily she keeps me on an even keel and makes sure that I'm okay. People assume, just for fun fact, people assume that if you're married to a nurse, they hover over you. She's like, are you dying? No. How bad does it hurt? No. Get some aspirin and go to bed. <laughs> she does not take much bullshit. That's just part of the gig. But uh-huh. like finding out like that's a literal worst fucking fear of my top fears of mine are going to the doctor finding out something's super fucked up wrong with me and then or like telling me that i have to have surgery and there's a chance i could die on the table you want to talk about like seeing somebody up all night crying being completely inconsolable for like a month (laughs) i'm that guy i would have never handled that with grace i would have been 
immediately I would have walked out, said, fuck running, I'm going straight to the bar, and I would have drank in myself <laughs> into a blackout stupor for like a week straight, and wouldn't be, you would not even be able to talk to me. Oh, that's funny, that's funny. Well, I mean, I didn't want to ask you how you would handle it, but you sort of answered it on your own. Oh, my God. You don't even want to know. Like, my wife, if she could hear this, would be rolling her eyes, be like, he'd be the biggest <laughs> fucking baby on earth. Oh, man. You know what? I, I, I guess I sort of share... I share the same is I would probably start eating horrible and just doing probably the most body damaging uh, um, vices or whatever the hell you want to call it. If I was told this, it's not a ticking, you know, you don't, you, he didn't give a, a timeline, but just knowing is have, like, just knowing. Yeah. Just knowing. It's just like, well then fuck it. I'm going to go ahead and eat all these cheeseburgers. That I fucking always wanted to and have fries for breakfast, lunch and dinner, you know? Yeah, I mean, it just that would have just ruined me. There are certain uh, things I'm cool with being in oblivion about, and that's one of them. Right, right. David and Keith are having coffee, and Keith is lending, you know, uh, an ear to David about the ongoing situation at church. Um, Keith always there for David, and Keith can see David is, you know, that just sort of talking a renewed person of sorts. You know, he's he's fighting or he's fought that internalized homophobia, and it, it impresses Keith. David could only be himself when he's with Keith. It's it's this real. It's where he feels most comfortable, and you know it's a little sad when Keith, after all of this, uh, explicitly implies that they are just friends. Um, David would rather have Keith as a friend instead of not having Keith at all. Let me ask you because it's a short scene and it's after the church. Did you read anything into this relationship? I, I am curious if if a fresh take on someone who doesn't know their backstory and future story. I thought that those dudes were like former lovers. They were. Let me ask you about Keith, though the 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 black the black bald guy. Any anything on him, or just that they were just former lovers, and that's really all you could take. That was really all I figured from it was that they had just been together at some point. Yeah, Keith Keith is just awesome. He's such like a rock. He's he's very comfortable with his sexuality. And he kind of struggles with David, who was his boyfriend a few episodes ago. And David's really struggling with his sexuality. Again, he's not the, the, the David we see here. And Keith is just awesome. He's he's there. He's always there for him. He's always giving him advice. He's always bailing him out of situations. Um, so it was just nice to see in a you know, season-long arc of sorts where they're okay with each other. David's a lot more comfortable. But Keith, Keith has moved on in the sense of... I don't want to say Keith moved on, but he's he's comfortable being friends at the moment. I am, would imagine, and it's probably something people don't even think about when there's something like this of, of two of a gay couple and one of them is struggling with their, you know, with their sexuality. It must be really tough to be in that relationship, right? I mean, that's something that's, that's something I, I would imagine straight people don't experience, <laughs> right? I'd probably tend to agree with you. Earlier, Tracy gives Rico a hard time about the casket and doesn't accept that they can get another casket as she's complaining about you know, that little nick on the casket. And sometimes, like Rico says, getting another casket isn't simply just isn't an option. Uh, as we see later in the episode, the problem isn't the casket or, or how, you know, the, the fishers are handling the funeral arrangements. It's just a feeling of loneliness that Tracy carries. Um she comes back to the funeral home to give some complaint to Nate and 
you know, as a result of not signing the contract, I would say Tracy is one of those people who creates drama just to create drama for the sense of something ongoing in her life. We, you know, we get this really sad dialogue later during the funeral. But what was your take on, on Tracy and just kind of how <laughs> really sad her, her character was? Tracy's the neurotic chick? Yes, who? that's her aunt who died. She was just super annoying, and I was waiting for her to get off screen. Oh, really? You you, you aren't buying any of her loneliness? No, and I mean, I, when she, they were up in that room, I thought, like, she was going to try to bang that dude, but that's, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I, I just, but my mind always goes there because I'm a weirdo. She's She's been, like, a, a background character a few random episodes, and what, what's funny about her character is she starts out, hitting on david and david's kind of afraid to tell anyone he's gay even uh you know a woman and he sort of just shoves it off and he's like yeah i'm married i'm sorry i'm i'm engaged and all this uh but there was an earlier episode where she just really breaks out how lonely she is and she's meant to be annoying let me let me say that that she's meant to be this mousy invasive uh arrogant or not arrogant arrogant is the right word but whatever her character but she come that all comes from this extreme place of loneliness and she shared it with david in an earlier episode and just to see it here too is i again while you have made out bought it if if maybe it's something along with the season i i have a thing i call on the show it's six feet under humor where you know nate nate sort of can't take it anymore obviously just hearing the news he could basically die at any moment and you know his boiling point where he's just like you know you should just be happy you're fucking alive and healthy. And then he just follows it up really quick with, you know, well, let me go get that contract for you. You know, just sort of that, well, shall we? Uh, that that something this show always does great with their humor. Claire is invited to a house party by Parker. And we see that Gabe is clean. And he's he's in the middle of there's two other guys at the party smoking. And I, I don't know if you picked up on this. I picked up on this when I heard the commentary there. Well, let me let me explain to you, Robert. The the guy Gabe, who's the one who ends up holding up the uh, liquor store, he tried to OD a few episodes. So now he's supposed to be this clean, uh, revitalized character or boyfriend. But they're in the middle, and the, his two friends are just passing a joint back and forth. And you know, he's he's casually he casually gives in and starts you know takes a hit whatever you want to call it and their friends start to mention about how they haven't done this moo thing since they were about six uh what sort of fires up gabe is that this was the same age that his brother died a few episodes earlier when he was doing the same exact thing smoking when gabe robs the liquor store i was under the impression he did it because he was high and <laughs> you know sort of that 2001 or just whatever this is what you do when you're on drugs sort of thing but alan ball pointed out that Gabe has been disempowered, you know, since the first time we met him. Acting out and taking control is sort of a painkiller of sorts for him. And he's taking control of something that he lost control of, which sort of was his own life. Uh, When he comes back to the party, he's renewed. He's a a changed person of sorts. The same way, you know, what's great about each episode of Six Feet Under is each character all the characters sort of go through the same thing in their own way. Where Gabe's, uh, for the negative, Gabe's renewed in that he's back. He's not clean anymore, let's put it like that. Uh, David renewed in coming out to everyone. Nate sort of renewed after the accident. And 
you know, Ruth being renewed after her, you know, season-long struggle of being timid. When Gabe, after he sticks up the liquor store, comes back to Claire, sense that something's off with Gabe. You could feel the shift in their person, their relationship in here. What did you think about this this Gabe character and how he sort of sticks up this this place just seemingly out of nowhere? I was like, I was watching. I'm like, isn't that a guy from a commercials in the '90s? Yep. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Like, I thought his jacket was funny with the embroidered American Eagle, Eagle. on the back. But I don't know. Like, he felt more or less. That dude felt more or less placeholder for. I mean, I can already tell. I I could just tell from the mm-hmm. arc of the way they presented him that he's gonna die eventually, and. Yeah. They it just he felt like a placeholder to develop her character further to when she eventually meets like an awesome dude who like is the anti Gabe and I feel like he's just a narrative plot point like that had no sort of uh, bearing or anything and I felt the exact same way about the chick who was throwing the party as well. Um, yeah, yeah. They just felt like throwaway characters to me in the sense that they were just there to develop. I mean, I know that the the plot of the story is to really develop the family and they're the ones who matter. But um, as far as the exterior characters go, I wasn't really, I didn't have any sort of anything towards them. And I was like, this dude's kind of a douche. And <laughs> like, why did the pretty redhead girl end up with that guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot we, I could say there. And it's funny just hearing like someone's just random. I plucked out one episode and you watched it uh, to speak about, but yeah, you you have you you have the correct uh, radar on a lot of what you were saying, um, but unfortunately, a lot of that. And I'm doing this podcast for some people who are this is their first watching, so I don't like to get too far into it uh, in regards to the future. But uh, we move to David, and he's giving a, a sermon at mass. And you know, we we I, I've been repeating myself here about how David obviously is a lot more comfortable. Uh, with his sexuality, but he's giving this sermon at Mass, and he goes off the cuff, and he did the same thing at the funeral director's convention uh, three episodes ago in episode 10. You know, David, he goes on about how he says he spent his life being ashamed and being that told and being told that gay is wrong, and, you know, now he sort of sees what a disservice he was doing to himself and others. Uh, he's put others in danger uh, just by not being able to for this to sit comfortably with him uh even though the applause was fake and it was sort of all in david's head uh i was just happy for david in this 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 moment in this show um you know he sits down after and uh i know i i'd bet money you definitely remember this robert where there's the stained glass <laughs> it's the little boy of blowing mm-hmm. the priest yeah uh Earlier, earlier, David would look at that and he would get this horrified in that look that he would be so scared just to see that his character arc. He's able to smile at that. That's just a well done character shift where something like that would have petrified him in earlier episodes. But now he could uh, shrug it off. Let me ask you, the young man who kept showing up battered and bruised. What did you what, what was your take on that? I just assumed he was a form of like a, a alter ego slash ghost voice mm-hmm. in his ear that from a past episode, I mean, he was bruised and bloody. And like, as this dude was having a transformative experience, 
he kept seeing him in the peripheral vision. And then when he finally stood up for himself and admitted, I'm here, this is what's up. I'm fucking, I'm a gay dude. This is how we're rolling from here on out. And that guy was better. It was almost like personal and psychosocial absolution. And so it was a win for not only him, but also the person who died. Yeah, and you know what? That's exactly you. You didn't see any of the, what episode he was in, but that's you. You just put the bow on that perfect. That yeah, that's exactly what it is. It, that, that that person was staying with him, and yeah, like David was able, you know, within his own little world, and just the way he he stood up, that sort of made that that kid who died die for something, if, even if it comes in the form of you know, uh, David to jump back to the. Lillian Montrose visitation that's going on and Robert I don't know exactly your age I'm gonna assume you're close to me I'm 30 or you're older as I get older I get more emotional when I watch any you know anything tv or read a book or anything um the scene here where David thanks Nate for staying in LA you know you don't know the character's backstory but for me it, it two brothers, you know, and, and it's from the heart, and it's David being vulnerable to Nate. You could see Nate start to swell up, and I didn't. I wouldn't say I swelled up, but I just was like, I kind of did like a fist pump to myself because I mean, where you're, where we're coming from with Nate too is he has, he has this you know impending doom, uh, you know, kind of hovering about him, and for David just to be so. Let me put it this way. Their characters are not someone who does this. So that's why when they do something just as small as, hey, man, you know, like a pat on the back. Thanks for staying here. Uh, it takes a lot out of them to even get to that point. I rode the emotion of waves with Nate. And it's something as I feel as I get older. You as a writer, do you feel any of that? Maybe you didn't feel it with this episode or that scene. But do you get any of that just in media you watch or whatnot? Oh, yeah, dude. Writing? Like, yeah. I didn't get it from that. But I, right, I right. Mean, like, I try to wear my emotions on my sleeve, period, as a human. And I try to, like, let people know that I appreciate them and I appreciate their, like, support, their time or whatever. I just, I try to make it a point as a human to do that. But I get emotional about all kinds of shit now. It's weird. Like, I'm a very emotional person as it is. I'm not, like, a crying psychopath. But I hold a lot of things in in turn. Like, I was sitting literally at my kitchen table having breakfast with my one of my kids on my lap yesterday. My wife was asleep, and I'm watching videos. Um, a, an artist I really like, Sturgill Simpson. I've been with him his whole career since since the jump, and with these last couple of records, they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he got nominated for Album of the Year, and, and like the whole community that I come from is he plays like traditionalist country, but it's very much real legit Merle Haggard and Johnny Cash inspired stuff, but he spun it on his own and people have really reacted to it. And he got the nod for Grammy of the year and the whole community was like, Oh my God, this is insane. Hell yeah. Uh He got, he got nominated. Like he just blew us away in this and Saturday night. Sturgill played on Saturday night live and he just Mm -hmm. eviscerated. Like he could not have made a statement more to say i have arrived to the people who didn't know him and like Mm -hmm. i'm sitting there with my kid on my lap watching this dude just murder the stage and i like (laughs) nearly cried up being like that's our dude he came up from nothing with us he recorded that record for two thousand dollars look at him now and like it was this total like bro moment of go team and Uh shit like that gets me all the time man i like have to stifle it back and 
You know, like oh, I was watching the uh, farewell address of Obama, and I yeah, nearly lost yeah. it, dude. I was just like, "Fuck, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm losing Denzel Washington and gaming and like gaining a clown. It's just like, incomparable to the just beauty, beauty and class and grace of how he carried himself." And I'm just watching it and realizing that, like, I'm not gonna get this. I'm gonna get some idiot talking about twi- Twitter, <laughs> and I, I nearly cried. I yeah. straight up nearly cried. I fought back tears because I was that bummed out. I had I me personally I did not watch it, but I had friends who I had friends who cried watching it and they are closer to me in age. Um so yeah, that that's a that's a common sentiment. But I tell you what though, I don't know if I'm I'm gonna sort try to tie this all together. I don't know if they would have cried four years ago well, I guess let's say eight years ago, right? Let's say this happened eight years ago. I don't think they would have cried eight years ago. I don't think me watching this episode, you know, when 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 David thanks Nate for staying in L.A., I don't think I would have felt what I felt watching this eight years ago. It just sort of happened. You realize, you know, you kind of realize how important family is, immediate family especially, right? Oh, yeah, dude, for sure. So just, just something I would venture to guess. I mean, I don't know what how how you... When I say I don't know how you watch a TV show, I don't know how like you digest it or whatnot, but I'd be willing to think you would you would be somewhere close to me when they say this. They had a similar moment like this a few episodes earlier where they just basically hug it out. A rare brother to brother, and we could scratch that, a rare man to man just saying I love you. You know, that's something, um, I don't know, just sometimes in certain forms of media, it just grips me. It's like, ah, man. You know, no, you, like I've had that with my own brothers and then with... Yeah friends of mine where we just squash something and it's good and you move on but I, I can remember specifically a time where I did that with my brothers my family I'm across the country from them so when I get to see them it's appreciated and yeah, yeah. when I get to see them it's this thing and like becoming getting married having kids changed everything man I became way more emotional way more cognizant yeah. about like lifestyle choices because you know I never wanted to be a dad and then I ended up having my first son and he changed everything. Open the open the eye. I know it sounds super cheesy, but he's the one that like changed completely how I viewed the world. And yeah. it's this stupid thing that people are like, "Oh well, until you're dead, you don't get it." And it's like that truism is there because I was a complete fucking idiot doing all kinds of really uh, bad things, not giving a shit about the outcome. And now I like totally think about the outcome because I don't want to leave a path of destruction bodily socially internally for my sons to have to clean up to further the point that i was saying that as i get older you get a little more emotional a little more emotional uh you know it's funny too and you just said it because i i take it if i had met you sometime before you had gotten married kid whatnot the idea of uh you know my little one changed the way i look at life and everything it's such a cliche but you've gotten to experience it it's a cliche on purpose like it's true right like it's it's like you just said it, like I, I know it's how cheesy this sounds, but your son changed your entire outlook on life, right? It just kind of rocked your world in, the, in a positive sense. I was drinking every day. I would get fucking blackout drunk. Like I, my record is getting blackout drunk for 43 days in a row. <laughs> when my wife, my wife was living here in like in Austin and I was in New Orleans, we'd met when she was in New Orleans and I would come in to see her. We were long distance for the first couple of months and I would come in and I would DT when I would come see her. So, like, when I say that I, like, live to the hilt of, like, making bad choices and partying and 
going out all night and doing crazy, crazy shit. I've done it. I have the stories to tell till five o'clock in the morning about insane stuff. And my kids came along and taught me that you don't need to go out every single night. You don't need to drink, <laughs> you know, like yeah. insane amounts of alcohol just to get through or to do whatever. I mean, that stuff, it's, it's a thing, dude. And they helped me get to the point of realizing that it's okay to just hang out with your family and not feel like you need to have a drink or like <laughs> kill a bottle of Jameson because you just want to. Like I blacked out at my son's, uh, we had a baby shower in Chicago and I blacked out and that's yeah. the last time I've drank like that. And yeah, I just don't anymore because I'm trying to like stay career minded. I still have a good time. I'm known to get, you know, to old guy, to, the monster to creep out now and again, but I don't want to <laughs> leave. I don't want to be a corpse for my kids, man. I want my wife to yeah, be right. like proud that she doesn't have to pick me up off the fucking ground or wrecking cars or doing <laughs> shit. She's a good yep. woman. I don't want to put her through that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to scale it back to uh, the episode. This is about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like I, I want to keep going, but I, I do know I have, I have, you know, I have to stay within uh, some parameters. When they're at the visitation, Lillian, or rather Tracy, is upstairs. Um, and kind of we spoke about earlier, she has this whole little month uh, dialogue of how uh, lonely she is. Uh, the one thing I did want to say here is uh, I'm someone who I have uh, on my notepad on my phone. I have I have just quotes that stick with me, and not like not the Marilyn Monroe quotes or whatever. It, to me, they're not not the cliche quotes. But who's to say they're not cliche? They're mo- mostly from movies I like or TV shows, whatnot. Uh, there was a quote here that I always liked that. I don't know if I'd ever get to use it in anything, but I just like the way, even the way it comes out, especially where Nate is. After she gives this whole dialogue about how sad she is, especially that her aunt died, she, you know, she asks Nate, you know, why do we die? And Nate, after a few seconds of inflection, is just like, to make life important. I've always liked that quote. I don't know how, you know, there's not much you could do with it. It's just, it's just something quick, nice to read. Again, going here with the six feet under humor, after all of this, you know, she spills her heart out about how lonely and sad she is and how nice Nate is. <laughs> she sort of looks up and is just like, hey, are you married? She's able to turn it off and on uh, just being this this mousy character, whatnot. I She mentions Harold and Maude. And have you ever seen that movie? I have not. I'm not. Uh... Yeah. I won I, I didn't know I, I didn't I didn't go ahead and research it but it seemed relative to what she was saying and I just I wondered what uh it had to do with but our scene and our season 1 finale wraps up with uh Augusto's christening and it's <laughs> we'll get to it be, being in a funeral home a funeral chapel rather but it's a nice nod to the series thus far um I don't want to spoil too much, and uh, I'll try to hop around it as much as I can, but the series starts out with the death of, you know, the head guy of the funeral home, Nathaniel Fisher, and here uh, we have a christening, uh, a blessing of a new life of Augusto, who is Rico's son, but to, to, to the fact that it's in the funeral home, and again, kind of just what I was saying there is there's a sense of that the show started with the death well, let me let me backtrack a bit for you there. Richard Jenkins, he's the guy who shows up, the older guy, the father that he keeps showing up to all the fishers. 
he he died in the pilot and he's sort of the head you know the head of the fisher family he left the business on to the two of them but you know it's nice that we see he's sort of on the steps just watching everyone go through their christening and whatnot and you know see everyone just sort of enjoying life at this moment uh david's holding augusto brenda and ruth are happily laughing together claire and gabe are sitting there being intimate at this point in the series it's unarguable who the main character is but here watching nathaniel watch over the family it's just a nice nod to sort of tie up season one you know you had him start out dying and now he's here watching you know over a uh how do you a party of a new life a blessing of a new life you know looks at the party turns around and walks upstairs um and that's how our season one ends do you have anything on that <laughs> christening taking place i know we spoke about it but kind of this just ending scene did you pick up that he was obviously in uh let me say ghost form yeah for I mean, lack of a pretty, better term that was pretty self-evident um you know i'm just happy that i like i like they they boated up they you know wrapped it up on the season ending note and it moved forward and it progressed at everything. I think that having the christening, they could have maybe done it in the yard, but <laughs> they chose to do it inside, which is fucked up. But I guess it was just a vehicle to, <laughs> for the sense of place for the story. And I'll, I'll let it slide, but you know, for the most part, it made sense to me. I was like, well, it's... I guess that's just <laughs> some fucking mortuary humor. It... It, yeah, it's something to the show's humor where it's like, you know, that irony where kind of like how the, you know, you know, like in the beginning, the death capsule where the two of them and you're like, all right, one of these two's got to die. She hits a ball and oh, look at that. It's this third person doing absolutely nothing. You know, it's sort of we're going to hold a celebration of life in a chapel where we celebrate death. You know, it's just sort of that grim that humor yeah that humor that the show works with and that wraps wraps up our episode any final thoughts on this episode anything i didn't touch on that you wanted to get out no it just it totally made me remind remember something that i was trying to do years ago like this conversation and that like thinking about it when uh this is totally unrelated but when i was living in new orleans i was trying to start a business where I wanted to work with funeral homes, where because most eulogies are fucking awful, and the way that people explain their loved ones just sucks. It sucks bad. Like the way that they're written up in the paper sucks. And I was like, I'm gonna start a business where I'm gonna write. People just give me fucking cliff notes of what the person was like, and I wanted to write their eulogies for them. So interesting. I thought about that, and it totally reminded me that I have like literally a binder full of i looked in the newspaper got people's names and then i wrote like page long <laughs> descriptions and i tried to like get hooked up with uh new orleans funeral homes and they were like no one has ever tried to do that before so i don't know if that works it's like well, why not offered as a service 100 bucks all right anybody yeah. i don't care I would say, let's say, let's say you're coming to me today with that idea. I don't, I'm not someone, listen, you have any idea, no matter how fucking crazy it is. I, I, I always, I always want people to pursue it. Uh, if you were coming to me today with that idea, yes, I've never heard that idea. But it's the a good the, idea. No, 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 it's, it's a good, it's a good idea. What, what, what I would say to it as a business model is the thing, the things in the paper, 
you know, the family's got to pay for that. And so you're sort of on a word count. So, yes, I would love for you to write, you know, my, my, my aunt's obituary in the most beautiful way possible. That would be something more for home and for the service, not necessarily in the paper. Yeah, that was the idea uh, for the service. Right. But that being said, there's something, and this is me, right? Maybe other people have, maybe other people take this differently. Let's say you were coming to me. I, as shitty as, an, as a job I would do, I feel somewhat disconnected in handing it over to a third party. You know what I mean? Or just like, I love my aunt a lot. Here's Cliff Notes. Now you do it. But that's not to say I wouldn't appreciate a better written eulogy, you know? I just want to, um, my idea with it was like, why not send people out with like, I, I can do one, I'm horrible at 99% of things. Horrible as an adult. But if you want a sentence written, I can write a sentence. I was like, dude, if they just tell me like, <laughs> Uncle Lou loved the, loved the fucking bears, was a good, was a good dude. Love to shoot pool. Everyone in his like lodge knew him. I got plenty I can work with. I can make Uncle Lou the best Uncle Lou. I will. <laughs> there won't be a dry eye in the house. Right, right. But I, it's just it's something that I just felt like having gone because I've you I've written the eulogy for every person that dies in my family. So like they're right. like, oh, you got to write it. You're the writer. I don't even have yeah, to read yeah. it most sometimes. Most of the time I do, but um, you know it's just become a thing. I was like, I could do that for people. But that was something yeah. I tried to do a couple of years back. I would say, as as a business model within itself, you know, it would it, it would be a, it would be a, a gig of sorts. It wouldn't necessarily, you know, obviously. I'm yeah, I'm just saying, like, if somebody wanted yeah, to pay yeah. me a hundred bucks, I'd do it, and yeah. they get some beautifully written thing. Back in the day, yeah. <laughs> Hit me up on Twitter. Maybe we'll talk. <laughs> He's at Robert underscore Dean, um, and to that we. As we said earlier in the episode, we wanted to, I wanted to spread the love and 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 the uh, promotion here. And again, I'm just going to reiterate what we did. Um, and by helping Robert, helping me, the podcast, you you go ahead and you post this episode on Twitter. You tag me at digging podcast. You tag Robert at Robert underscore Dean. Uh, if you're doing it on their platforms, just go ahead, screenshot it, email it to me. And what we want to do is we want to give away five signed copies of the Red 7. And hopefully you can engage other people who want to pick up Robert's book. Maybe you're the person who wins the book and you just pass it along to someone. Um, you know, we just want to, again, I just want to say too, as I said earlier, that I'm not going to try and sit here and pretend like I'm not asking you to promote from us. Because that's literally what I'm asking for you to do. But I feel like we all benefit. If you like this podcast, uh you know, I'm not someone who's asking for any money. I'm not doing Patreon or anything like that. I just kind of, I want more, I want to get as many people to listen. Uh, Robert has a bigger, more important goal, you know, where we're benefiting off each other here. We had, <laughs> I like this podcast. It, it felt the most conversation I've had of the, all the, all the episodes. And yeah, like I, I would just like to, to help out mutual, you know, mutual beneficially help out and so yeah, go ahead and post this episode and, you know, within the week we'll go ahead and pick five random people. Uh, so that sort of wraps up this episode. Robert, thank you for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, allowing me to introduce myself to the world of Six Feet Under. All right. Well, 
Sounds good. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, SoundCloud. Uh, go check out the new website at diggingpodcast.com. I have some surprises that are coming that way soon. Catch me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at digging6feetunder. Go follow me. I just posted a pretty funny picture I saw in a uh, funeral industry magazine that somehow ties in our new president and cremation. So go check out that. Go like us on Facebook at Digging Six Feet Under. And if you're a mega fan and need more Six Feet Under and more of Robert's interview, uh, go check out the season one recap episode. I'll be posting that along with this episode. Uh, I have details in there about what's coming up for season two from the week in between break. And that's it. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. Join us on the next episode as we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under. Please search and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes under Digging Six Feet Under. The Digging Six Feet Under podcast is in no way affiliated with HBO or Six Feet Under, and the views expressed here are solely that of the hosts. No infringement is intended.